Good morning. I'm Brett Kavanaugh of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Proud, as always, to be here at the Federalist Society. I'm a longtime member and supporter of this society. I've been coming to or participating in these conferences for much of the last two decades. And every year I marvel at the quality of the panels and the speakers at the Federalist Society conferences. And this year, of course, has been no exception. This conference has been truly extraordinary, and I think uh, it's really been the best one yet, which is saying something, and it's a tribute to the Federalist Society leadership and to the membership of the Federalist Society as well. This morning, I have the honor of moderating this panel on intellectual property, American exceptionalism, or international harmonization. We have four excellent speakers. What we'll do is hear from each of the speakers and then take questions from all of you. First, let me introduce all four members of the panel. Our first speaker will be Professor Adam Mossoff from Michigan State University College of Law. Professor Mossoff's work focuses on the theoretical and doctrinal intersections between property and intellectual property, with a special focus on the intellectual history of patents. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and was a clerk on the Fifth Circuit. Professor Mossoff will speak about the history of the U.S.'s approach to intellectual property with an explanation of the patent system and property rights perspectives. The second speaker will be Professor Shuba Ghosh from Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law in Dallas. He has extensive academic and practical experience and has taught and published widely in the intellectual property field. He is a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School, and he will discuss how U.S. intellectual property laws are a branch of trade regulation and competition laws, and will compare the American approach to the European Union's approach. Our third speaker will be Professor Scott Keefe from Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Professor Keefe has delivered numerous articles and speeches about obtaining and enforcing intellectual property rights. He received his JD from the University of Pennsylvania School of Law, clerked for Judge Rich on the Federal Circuit, and practiced in the intellectual property field at firms in New York and Chicago before becoming a professor. Professor Keefe will discuss why property rights matter in this field and will discuss and explore the various approaches to critical intellectual property issues. Our last speaker will be Stephen Tepp. Mr. Tepp is a principal legal advisor in the Office of General Counsel at the U.S. Copyright Office. He has served at the Copyright Office for seven years as a key advisor to the Register of Copyrights on both domestic and international copyright matters. He was a central negotiator of the intellectual property chapters of two U.S. free trade agreements. And prior to joining the Copyright Office, Mr. Tepp was an attorney for the Senate Judiciary Committee on the staff of Chairman Orrin Hatch, where he specialized in intellectual property. He'll give us an overview of U.S. copyright law and a comparative approach with Asia and Europe. And he'll discuss who the real winners and losers are of property rights laws. We're fortunate, as always, to have four such extraordinary speakers today. Professor Mossoff, the floor is yours. I will set the precedent by standing and speaking. Well, it is an honor to be leading such a, uh, a panel of such distinguished uh, 
um, colleagues, both in practice and in academia. Intellectual property, American exceptionalism, or harmonization. I'm sure that many of you, when you saw that title, the first thing that probably leapt to your mind was that was that of the current push or the push for the last several decades of harmonization between the various intellectual property laws of all the countries throughout the world. This makes sense in the intellectual property context. IP assets in particular seem to be global assets, whether you're talking about a trademark in Coke or the latest Harry Potter book or movie or the latest pharmaceutical treatment for AIDS. These are used throughout the world, and so we would wish for them to be deployed most efficiently and easily in the marketplace and therefore provide uniform protection throughout all the countries in the world. But another, another way to think about harmonization, and that is to approach the matter from an historical perspective and to ask whether, as an historical matter, the U.S. approach in particular to the definition and legal protection of intellectual property has been consistent with the approaches adopted in other countries, such as France, Germany, or England. My contention that it is that it has not been, that the U.S. approach has been unique. Now, I'll be speaking principally about patent law, although much could be said, obviously, about other intellectual property rights, such as trade secrets or, or uh, um, trademarks. Now, living in the 21st century, enjoying all the benefits of a high-tech industry, computers, internet, latest innovations in biotech and the pharmaceutical industry, we often forget that the American patent system and its central doctrines were first developed in the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, from the very first Patent Act of 1790, Congress and courts defined patents as property rights. And at that time, the dominant property theory is one that we would now call the Lockean conception of property. Defined property as the exclusive rights of acquisition, use, and disposal of one's possessions. And thus, American legislators and courts adopted and relied upon this theory of property in developing the American patent system, securing to inventors their property rights in their inventions, what the patent statutes and court opinions repeatedly referred to as the exclusive rights to manufacture, use, and sell an invention. Now, this was significant. The newly independent, upstart, brash young Americans were taking a different approach from England and how they define patent rights. England, up until that point, and continuing up through the 19th century at least, defined patents as essentially personal privileges granted by the crown. The Americans instead defined patents as property rights. Now, the impact of the American approach was dramatic and immediate. At a general level, it led to the institutionalization of patent law under the rule of law. In the antebellum era, patents were issued first under the Secretary of State and then under a patent commissioner, and ultimately in 1836 through, a, through an office, the patent office, that was created specifically to review and issue patents under pre-existing legal rules set forth in federal statutes and in case law. This is much very different from the approach taken in France and England, where the issuance of patents in the patent system remained rife with discretionary authority because they were grants from the sovereign. In the U.S., the federal government was essentially replicating the type of title recordation and publication requirements already being deployed in the real property system. And in fact, at a broader level, the U.S. patent rights were actually conceptualized in terms of common law property rights. 
patents were identified as title deeds, and courts applied other real property concepts to patent law. Multiple owners, for instance, of a patent were identified as tenants in common, and infringement was recognized as a trespass of the inventor's property. In fact, courts adopted and applied normatively laden property rhetoric in patent cases. Supreme Court justices were identifying and referring to patent infringers as pirates as early as the 18-teens, and other federal courts repeatedly applied the Lockean policy in property law that the patent laws should secure to inventors, quote, the fruits of their inventive labors, end quote. Thus, in legal disputes, it's unsurprising that one finds the federal courts repeatedly citing to and relying on real property cases at common law involving conveyances, restrictive covenants, and easements as precedent for deciding the patent cases before them at that time. As one federal judge instructed a jury in an 1846 patent infringement trial, quote, an inventor holds a property in his invention by as good a title as the farmer holds his farm and flock, end quote. As a result of this conceptual and rhetorical framing of patent rights as property rights, American legislators and courts thus created patent doctrines that specifically secured to patentees their property rights. Most importantly, they protected patentees in the rights of use and sale of their patented inventions. Patents could be sold or transferred in the United States, and patentees could adopt various restrictive conditions, similar to restrictive covenants, on what licensees could do with their patented inventions in terms of the territory in which their patented inventions could be sold or used and how many they could manufacture or how many they could sell. In other words, patentees were permitted to control the downstream commercial exploitation of their inventions for the purpose of securing to them their maximum profit that they could achieve during their patent term. What the courts, as I said, repeatedly identified, not as profits, but in their Lockean terminology of the fruits of their inventive labors. And even beyond the patent system, at the constitutional level, courts recognized in the 19th century that patentees should be protected and are protected against unauthorized uses by the government under the Takings Clause. In Khmer v. Newton in 1873, in McKeever v. U.S. in 1876, among many other cases, federal courts, including the Supreme Court, repeatedly held that patentees can sue federal officials for unauthorized uses of their patented inventions. And in these cases, they recognized repeatedly that the government's taking of an inventor's profit in such unauthorized uses was analogous to the expropriation of land. Now, it bears emphasizing that these institutional, doctrinal, and constitutional developments were unique to the American patent system. In England, for example, as I just noted, patents were protected not as property, but as personal privileges granted by the crown. Thus, for instance, as a doctrinal matter, English patents were not transferable. They could not be sold. They could not be devised by will unless the crown granted an exception and permitted them to do so. Even more importantly, the English government retained in every patent an applied right to use that patent invention without authorization from the patentee. Now, in the 19th century, U.S. courts were very much aware of these developments in England, and they often cited to the English cases that, that repeatedly held uh, uh, the, that repeatedly held 
uh, English patentees to these various doctrinal requirements as examples, as examples of the practical, real-world doctrinal differences that flowed from what might seem to be an innocuous conceptual distinction between calling something property versus calling it a personal privilege. Summing up the American approach to patents, Representative Daniel Webster declared on the floor of the House in 1824 that, quote, the right of the inventor is a high property. It is the fruit of his mind. It belongs to him more than any other property, and he ought to be protected in the enjoyment of it, end quote. Thus, in the 19th century, American inventors, many of them, such as Charles Goodyear, who invented vulcanized rubber, Frederick Morris, who invented the telegraph, Thomas Edison, the first practical incandescent light bulb, they knew with certainty that if they came up with a new invention, the patent system would provide them with the definitive legal security they sought in their property. The patent system would secure to them their rights of use and alienation, that they would be able to commercialize their inventions for their profit, and even more importantly, that they would be protected against piracy, either by other citizens or by the government. And just as important, they knew that the patent system was institutionalized, and it was defined by the rule of law. It was not rife with discretionary authority under the sovereign. Now, it's interesting to note that all of these features have become hallmarks of the modern patent systems throughout the world today. Thus, these historical observations lead to an interesting modern observation, and that is, it is in fact 19th century American exceptionalism which has become 21st century norm, something perhaps for us to remember in the continuing discussions about harmonization where we work out some of the more uh, refined differences in detail in some of the, doc in some of the patent systems uh, between the United States and other countries in the world. Thank you. Well, it's quite an honor to be here, and I want to thank uh, the organizers and um, the invite uh, for the invitation to participate with these uh, distinguished colleagues. Uh, I've uh, known Scott for a while, and I've uh, talked with Steve uh, many a time, and uh, and uh, it's an honor to be here with uh, Judge Kavanaugh. But uh, I've interacted with Adam on these issues before, and I was joking before that uh, whenever I think about Adam, I, I can't help but think about Winston Churchill. Uh, and the reason I think about Winston Churchill is the famous quote that uh, the U.S. and England are two countries separated by a common language. And Adam and I do share a common language. Uh, we talk about property, we talk about property rights and so forth, and we use them in, in many different ways. And I think probably the same is true about the U.S. use of property rights language and rights language and intellectual property in comparison to how it's used in European countries and how it's beginning to be used in a lot of developing countries, uh, both in South Asia and East Asia, that some of the other panelists may, may talk about. And I do think U.S. intellectual property law is exceptional, but I think the exceptionalism has to do with the emphasis within U.S. intellectual property law on competition. And you know, when we had our phone conversation about uh, about the panel, I, I mentioned that my take would be to view intellectual property as trade regulation, and there was sort of a, a hushed silence at the at the other end. And I, and I guess mentioning regulation to this crowd is like talking about garlic at a vampire convention. <laughs> but but uh, but nonetheless, uh, I do take the view of it as uh, as as trade regulation, in the sense that 
I view that the rights that are created through intellectual property law, not simply as it exists now, but as you go back to the 19th century, uh, really largely are about promoting competitive values. It's the same way that in environmental law, we think about creating rights in the context of markets for tradable pollution rights and things like that, uh, creating a market for, uh, for pollution control. I see the, the intellectual property law using intellectual property rights to create markets for innovation. And certainly we see that in the modern version of the regulatory state and also, I guess, for lack of a better term, postmodern versions of the regulatory state. But if you, even if you go back to, to the 19th century, a lot of intellectual property rhetoric about rights was really, I think, should be seen in the context of common law uh, rules against restraints on trade, for example. So there's always been a very important parallel between intellectual property law, as we call it now, and antitrust law and competition law. So if you take intellectual property law from a, from a comparative standpoint, the U.S. approach, I, I believe, is largely about competition. That's the underlying norm. And the European approach, for lack of a better adjective, has largely been about individual rights, whether it's in the moral rights tradition, for example, that you see in copyright, or even in some notions of inventor's rights that you see in some, in, in some nation form in some, in some European countries. And to just give you two, two implications of, of that, of that contrast. One is the way in which we think uh, antitrust and competition policy law works in the U.S. and, and the European Union. The European Union, as, as we've seen, has tended to be very aggressive on what we would call competition policy issues, i.e. take the Microsoft case as one example. And there are lots of other examples which follow in, in, that, in, that, in that line. And the reason why we see that in the Europe and not so much in the U.S., U.S., uh, that case eventually petered out is that U.S. intellectual property laws incorporate a lot of pro-competition pro values. Uh, for example, the idea expression distinction, the way we think about fair use, the way we think about experimental use, for example, in patent law, the way we think about uh, fair use in trademark law, recognizes competition within the structure of intellectual property, while the European approach has been more individual rights perspective, and therefore it's left, left open the possibility of antitrust-like approaches. And another implication of, of this exceptionalism is, is the, the spate of Supreme Court cases that deal with uh, patent law specifically in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of those cases actually show a, a really inclination to think about uh, intellectual property law in terms of competition or competitive values rather than just simply pure property rights uh, that are meant for, for exclusionary purposes. That right to exclude is important, but it's there in order to create markets and create competition. So uh, I want to spend the rest of my time then talking about uh, two aspects of this, both the, the idea of intellectual property as about being competition or about competitive regulation, both as a descriptive claim and then as a normative claim. Uh, as a descriptive claim, uh, intellectual property as competition to me makes sense. I mean, when I think back about teaching intellectual property, the first time I taught it, I used a book called Legal Regulation of the Competitive Process. Uh, Kitchen Perlman's famous case book that originally came out in 1972 under that title, I think came out, I think, in its fifth edition in 1999. 
under the rubric intellectual property, an interesting title change, which I'm sure the marketing folks at Foundation had a lot to do with, uh, but is also has something to do with the change in the weather uh, and how we talked about these issues in the 1990s. But legal regulation of the, intellect of the competitive process seems very compelling as, as an overarching theme for what unites patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, and all of these other doctrines that we talk about as intellectual property. And if you look at some of the developments uh, within uh, U.S. intellectual property law, a lot of it has occurred in the context of trade. Uh, there's a lot that's been written, a very important and very interesting and an excellent article by Adam about Jefferson's view of, on, 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 on patent law, but there's also Hamilton's view on patent law. And Hamilton's view on patent law was to recognize something called the patent of importation that would allow somebody, a U.S. citizen, to go overseas, see how things worked in, 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 in English or other industries, and bring back that knowledge in the U.S. and patent it without having any problems with, uh, with infringement of the foreign knowledge. Uh, the idea was that patent systems promoted trade, promoted competition, promoted innovation, promoted a form of competition, in Hamilton's view. And when you think about the IP clause itself in the Constitution, and there's a lot of very interesting, very important discussion among academics and practitioners about the relationship between the IP clause and the Commerce Clause, one thing that they do have in common was to create a unified national market. I mean, that was the underlying conception behind underlying both of those clauses, the, the Commerce Clause certainly and the Intellectual Property Clause often arising in situations involving preemption against balkanization by state IP law. So as a descriptive claim, I think there's a lot of ground to think about uh, intellectual property as a form of uh, competitive regulation. How about as a normative claim? I think as a normative claim, it's very compelling. I think as a normative claim, we're saying that intellectual property law is about competitive values. And the question is, what types of competition do we want? Uh, the, the claim that intellectual property is not a monopoly privilege in some ways is a ho-hum claim, a very important one, but it's a ho-hum claim from the perspective of antitrust law. Antitrust law has, especially in very recent years, made, made very saliently the point that intellectual property is not a monopoly, right? It is a set of rights, but it's not necessarily monopoly in the antitrust case. See, for example, the recent Independent Inc. decision by the Supreme Court uh, in 2006. Okay, so as a normative claim, we're talking about competition, and then the question is, what are the values of competition, right? And I'll, I'll be very quick and wrap this up now. The first value that I might talk about is one of openness and transparency, right? This is where you think a lot of the debates in copyright, for example, especially the relationships between copyright and free speech and copyright and uh, legislative politics become very important. But what connects the two is the notion of copyright as about markets, much, much as the First Amendment is about the marketplace of ideas. And they are both sort of should be thought in tandem in trying to promote values of competition, which have implications for how we think about things like the idea expression distinction, fair use, and also how we think about copyright term extension, where we think about the legislative politics intervening in some ways in the operation of, uh, of competitive markets. And my last point about this is um, some recent patent cases. Uh, this is sort of uh, emphasizing why the Supreme Court has taken some very interesting cases in the last couple of terms on patent law. And there's, there's a very interesting one this term as well that I'll talk about. Uh, but the three big cases, eBay having to do with injunctive relief, even though it's often viewed as, uh, as a sideswipe to property rights, the underlying normative claim in eBay is one about competition. 
We don't want the equivalent of somebody who has a patent on an item to disrupt the competitive marketplace in certain ways, and it's recognizing, at least through the remedies aspect of patent law, some limits uh, on that ability. The same thing in the metamune case. The metamune case recognizing some Article III uh, standing issues uh, raised by a patent licensee bringing a declaratory judgment to challenge the validity of a patent. The court very accurately and very correctly recognized that a patent licensee can challenge the validity of a patent even if there is no bona fide dispute uh, regarding the contract. And I think they did articulate some very important competitive values in that case. And finally, the, the real, uh, the real, uh, the shocker case, I guess, for most people, the controversial case, KSR versus Teleflex. That was decided last term, the decision just coming down in April 2007. A lot of questions about the, the substantive value of, of the opinion, whether the court really changed anything or, or upset the apple cart even more. But certainly throughout that opinion, there is some notion, especially in the non-obviousness doctrine, about competition. And then the last case that I want to talk about, and, and here just a disclosure, I did write a, an amicus brief for the American Antitrust Institute in this case, the Quanta versus LG Electronics case which the court will hear oral arguments on uh, in January, that has to do with the first sale doctrine and the ability of a patent owner to impose conditions in a patent license that can be enforced against subsequent licensees or purchasers of a, of a patented item. And the whole notion of the first sale doctrine as it's raised in that particular case, again, has very substantively to do with competition values. So uh, very briefly to conclude, I started with a quote from Churchill. Let me start with uh, a bad quote maybe from the French playwright Moliere. Uh, in one of his plays, one of his characters contemplates how he suddenly realizes one day that all his life he's been speaking prose. And in a similar way, the courts have been talking about rights and property, but really what they've been speaking about is competition. Thank you. Thanks. It's always great to be back with uh, with the gang here, uh, the Federalist Society, uh, and of course each of these uh, uh, guys on the panel. It's really been fun working with uh, Shuba and Adam and Steve and, and uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Hopefully we'll uh, we'll try to keep this uh, fast paced and maybe a little controversial. What I want to try to do is highlight basically three topics. Um, one is uh, what difference does all of this make to talk about property or regulation? property or so-called liability rule treatment, what, what's the difference? Um, what does it really mean to markets? What does it really mean to us? Uh, number two, let's uh, take a slightly different take uh, on kind of why we want to have IP. Um, and number three, let's highlight some differences between different types of IP like patent and copyright. So let's begin at the beginning. Why do we want this stuff? What difference does it make? Let's just notice a few things, okay? We used to have no meaningful patent protection in the basic biotechnology sector before 1980. Set of judge-made rules that said, if you kind of had to do with life, not patentable, okay? The rest of the world, same thing. After 1980, we changed the law. Supreme Court granted cert, uh, Chakrabarty case, uh, no special exemption in basic biotechnology. Basic biotechnology is open for patents like any other industry. Basic biotechnology patents now available in the U.S. after 1980. Rest of the world, no change, 
no basic biotechnology patents. Before and after 1980, U.S., Europe, and Japan all had big pharma, all still have big pharma, Merck, Pfizer, Roche, Tanabe, right? But only in the United States and only after 1980 do you see a massive pool of around 1,500 small and medium-sized biotech companies, okay? So adding patents has been correlated in that industry with a drastic increase in competition, all right? That's a difference. That's a difference you can feel, right? That's a difference. That's a difference for healthcare, and that's a difference for startup companies. That's a difference for competition. New drugs, new devices bring, being brought to market much faster, and a drastic increase in the number of firms and the variance in firm size. Let's look at another industry. No meaningful patent protection in the United States in the software industry beginning with the Benson decision in the early 70s. And that persists in the United States in the software industry through the 80s, really through the early 90s, with the, finally with the Allopat decision in the Federal Circuit in 96. Now, what happened in the United States software industry during that time? Everybody remembers that. We got Microsoft, right? The absence of patents in software was closely correlated with a single large player in the presence of patents in biotech was closely correlated with a drastic increase in the number of players, a drastic increase in the amount of competition. All right. Now, in fact, uh, uh, just the last couple of days, I've been in Chicago at a conference at Northwestern looking at the Microsoft antitrust case. People on both sides of the case seem to agree. Actually, in the U.S. and in Europe, the remedies seem to have not made much of a difference to the market. Although Microsoft does now seem to be getting a lot of competition, a lot more credible threats. Who's the number one threat for Microsoft today? That's Google. And Google is a company built around search technology, technology that was patented and is patented. Google has a very serious patent portfolio that it takes very seriously. And so the threat to Microsoft is not coming from regulation. That's not making any difference at all. It's costing a lot of money, but it's not doing a lot of benefit. The threat is coming from Google with patented technologies. And the patents on that technology allowed Google to raise venture capital, to form itself into a firm, and to take a firm public, a firm that now has a market cap, one of the largest firms in the world. Okay? Now, that window patents on software, which opened in 96, is actually just closed this year because of Federal Circuit cases on uh, Section 101 of the Patent Act. And so it'll be interesting to do some studies over time, uh, whether, in fact, now that we close out patents and software, do we actually now get less competition? Let's also then talk about a different take, okay? So if patents increase competition and if patents increase um, commercialization, how do they do it? A lot of folks talk about IP rights as tools for getting inventions put to use, sorry, getting inventions made. But what I want us to think about is getting inventions put to use. And think about the mechanism here, okay? If we turn off all the lights in this room and you give me a flashlight, everybody in this room knows exactly where I am. And everybody in this room knows exactly where everybody else in this room is going to be if they're interested in that flashlight. They're going to show up and talk to me because I'm holding the flashlight. Patents are like that. They're a beacon in a dark room. That right to exclude forces all the complementary users of the technology to come talk 
to the patentee and thereby talk to each other. This is not a theory of control and power. It's not like the patentee is going to control that conversation. The person who's going to control that conversation is the person with the best bargaining power. Maybe that's the venture capitalist. Maybe that's the patentee. Maybe that's the source of labor. Maybe that's somebody else. But that patent right gets that conversation started precisely because that patent right is a right to exclude. And it gets that conversation consummated successfully in a deal because if we have so-called liability rule treatment, right, a rule that says, hey, look, hey, Judge Kavanaugh, look, Adam and I have been negotiating for years. You know, he's irrational. You've got to step in and set the right price. Right. That's liability rule treatment. But if we have a right to exclude, the judge is going to say, look, guys, one of you has a property right. Keep talking to each other. Liability rule treatment means a court sets a price. Property rule treatment means we set the price. Well, if I know that the judge is going to intervene when Adam and I don't agree, I'm going to make sure Adam and I don't agree, right? It's going to be like the three stooges. I'm going to poke him in the eyes and step on his toes and call him names. I'm going to totally annoy him so that I can stand up in front of the judge and say, look how annoyed he is. He's acting irrationally, right? But if we have property rule treatment, then we're going to get a deal done because it's going to be in our best interest to get a deal done. Now, let's look at how some of this plays out in different IP regimes today. Patent, there uh, is basically no fair use exemption, basically no commercial, sorry, experimental use exemption. Basically, any use is infringing, right? And yet, you can go to the biology department down the street at GW University, and what do you find? Basic biologists engaging in rampant infringement. I mean, all sorts of infringement is going on in the academic sector in basic biotechnology, and it's okay. And why is it okay? Because the cost of enforcing patents is very high, around $5 million, and the benefit of suing a basic scientist for infringement is very low. It's like, well, I don't know, buck ninety-five. So who's going to spend $5 million to get a buck ninety-five back? That's like just opening up all of your veins and watching the blood flow out. People in business don't do that. They don't spend that kind of money to get that kind of reward. So there's radical under-enforcement in the patent sector because, and it's exciting, because the patentees, <laughs> because the patentees bear the cost of enforcement. But look at copyright. Copyright's a very different industry. Copyright, you have a so-called fair use exemption that's designed to get that fair use done, and yet you've got criminal liability and statutory damages. So every one of us... Think about the social cost of this. Every time we rent a DVD and we want to fast forward through that FBI warning, we can't even watch, we can't even get to our movie. We have to watch that FBI warning. There's criminal law, and by the way, these days also an Interpol warning, right? Just add up all of those minutes of time that get wasted because of criminal liability and copyright. And what happens is you've got over-enforcement in copyright. So you've got that poor lady up in Minnesota, and she's paying hundreds of thousands, or uh, she's been uh, ordered to pay, uh, several hundred thousand dollars in uh, statutory damages for copyright infringement. This is a difference in approach, okay? Patent system is a more property rights approach. It's an approach that says absolute right to exclude, but the owner bears the cost of enforcement. The copyright system is one of these so-called fair and balanced approaches. It's designed to be balanced. It's designed to, to, to be a compromise. And, and by the way, who wants to sound like, you know, we don't want to compromise? But the problem with compromise is it leads to incoherence. 
It leads to a system that's really hard for people in the marketplace to deal with. It's hard for people to know what use is going to be fair, and it's hard for people to know what use is going to be criminal. And the consequences are extreme. It's either free or several hundred thousand dollars in jail time. That kind of decision-making process is very, very hard for market actors to use and very, very hard for customers to use. But by the way, it's pretty easy for interest groups to use. And I think that's why interest groups strike those compromises in Congress. Now, there are rational reasons to do that, and I don't want to beat up on the copyright system, but I do want to point out that there are different approaches we can take, and those different approaches will have a different uh, uh, impact on the ability for market actors to compete with each other and to get new uh, ideas actually put to use in the market. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Judge Kavanaugh, for your kind introduction, and thank you to the Federal Society for inviting me to pres uh, present at this uh, tremendous panel discussion and uh, anniversary convention. It is a true honor for me to, uh, to be on this panel and in the larger company of all the speakers here this year. Let me begin by disclaiming my remarks from being the views of the Copyright Office or any uh, branch or entity of the federal government. Uh, I wasn't planning to quote Winston Churchill, but Shuba uh, inspired me to. Uh, in reviewing the history of U.S. copyright law, Winston Churchill might well have been talking about copyright law when he said that America always does the right thing, but only after trying every other option first. Uh, and indeed, the history of U.S. copyright law, particularly in its first century, uh, American exceptionalism meant isolationism. The uh, Federal Copyright Act of 19, uh, 1790 is marked by uh, formalities, notice, uh, mandatory notice of copyright, registration, which included deposit requirements, and renewal. Uh, failure to do any of these things could cost you the entirety of your rights. Similarly, for the first 101 years of the federal copyright statute, the United States provided absolutely no protection to authors outside the United States under any condition. Uh, the Berne Convention, the leading international convention uh, setting the normative standards for basic copyright protection, was first agreed in 1886, and at that very time, while international norms were being set, which eschewed formalities and offered national treatment to the authors of foreign countries, the United States was busy centralizing its formalities and its registration system in particular in the Federal Copyright Office. In 1891, the United States finally offered international copyright protection uh, to, uh, or national protection uh, to foreign authors but it did so with an unapologetically protectionist uh, provision known as the Manufacturing Clause, which conditioned protection of foreign authors on the domestic manufacture of any books, photographs, lith lithographs, etc. The Manufacturing Clause, you may or may not be shocked to learn, remained in U.S. law in full force until 1955, 
at which time the United States joined its first global copyright convention, the Universal Copyright Convention, that, by the way, is the real UCC. Ironically, uh, thereafter, the Manufacturing Clause remained in U.S. law applicable only to U.S. authors, uh, and it remained so un until the Reagan administration at the end of 1986 when it finally expired. Uh, and finally, the U.S. did join the Berne Convention, but not until 1988, uh, six years after the founding of the Federalist Society. But in that short time, uh, in the late 20th century, the United States has gone through a remarkable transformation in its copyright law, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the international community. It has joined uh, not only the Berne Convention, but in doing so, it has uh, abolished, by and large, mandatory copyright notice, as well as registration. Uh, the uh, Renewal requirements uh, were no longer apl applicable to works created after or that entered federal copyright protection after January 1st, 1978. And for pre-1978 works, renewal became automatic in 1992. By the end of the 20th century, the U.S. had completed its transformation from copyright pariah into a, if not the, global leader in copyright protection. Uh, as evidenced by the TRIPS agreement uh, that uh, was part of the Uruguay round of the WTO, the WIPO Internet Treaties in 1996, and since then, the free trade agreements, which the United States has been very busy negotiating up until recently, uh, with uh, numerous trading partners uh, in every region of the world. The one consistency of U.S. copyright law through that entire time, however, has been its property rights market-based approach. Uh, as you're all probably familiar, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, properly known as the Copyright and Patent Clause, uh, evidences this, this, uh, this approach in its very words to Congress is authorized to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for a limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And so in comparing modern U.S. copyright law to the, uh, the different types of theories which undergird copyright laws around the world, I think we see some interesting uh, approaches. The continental approach most commonly attributed to France is uh, characterized usually as a moral rights regime rather than an economic rights regime, which uh, you see in the U.S. That is somewhat intuitively, counterintuitively, not necessarily indicative that the U.S. approach gives more protection. In fact, in some regards, I think you could argue that the French uh, approach gives more protection. Moral rights, as they are not economic rights, are not alienable, for, for example, uh, and uh, are not subject to the sort of exceptions we see in the U.S. And, and other countries' law with regard to economic rights, such as the first sale doctrine or similar exemptions that have already been alluded to. That, of course, results in a preference for the author over the publisher and a focus more on the individual rather than 
the uh, interest in both the individual creator, the right holder as distributor, and the general public. Uh, copyright in the United States is perceived as something of a trade-off. The author receives their exclusive rights from which they can derive economic benefit as both a reward and an incentive to further creation. The publishers receive similar rewards for distributing that work and making it available to the public at large. The public, of course, benefits from the creation and distribution of those works, but also after a period of time, uh, those works enter the public domain. In many countries uh, around the world, particularly in East Asia, copyright is not seen as a public good. It's seen as largely a private good. And the consequences of that tend to be little or no criminal provisions uh, for enforcement of copyright. And indeed, where there are criminal provisions, they're often subject to requirements that the aggrieved right holder file a formal complaint with the prosecutor before the prosecutor is authorized to actually indict the defendant. Uh, there is no ex officio authorities, uh, authority of the prosecutors in these countries, though the U.S. is trying its best to change that, of course. And finally, I think this goes somewhat to Shuba's point. There are certainly countries in the world that view copyright not as an engine of creativity, but perhaps more cynically as simply a wealth transfer system of, uh, of trade regulation. And when one removes from the analysis of the theoretical basis of copyright, the incentive to create and the public benefit from the creation of new works, then it makes perfect sense to suggest new forms of quasi-intellectual property for things like traditional knowledge and folklore, which not only are not new authorship, they're authorship so old that its attribution lies lost uh, in, the, uh, in antiquity. And we see exactly those sorts of proposals coming uh, on the world stage these days. They, uh, they tend to be couched in intellectual property terms, and yet the theoretical basis for them is wholly inconsistent with any certainly American notion of copyright and promoting, again, the public good that derives from the creation and distribution of new works. Thank you. can uh, start lining up for questions and seeing several. Uh, I guess we'll start there. Uh, I might take a couple questions and let the, let the panelists kind of field them uh, together rather than just one. So uh, why don't people, uh, why don't we take a couple here uh, at the start. Uh, recently there have been some uh, concerns raised and some would argue attacks on the strength of patent rights. One sees some negative comments, for example, by Justice Breyer about bad patents and weak patents. Uh, you see articles by Professor Carl Shapiro about uh, patent rights being probabilistic. And it's great, and there are even some public choice authors who say that, well, given uh, the rent-seeking activity involved in 
establishing a patent law and given the exigencies and weaknesses of the patent office, you get many bad patents out there. So maybe in some sense uh, we, we, sh we should be somewhat skeptical about these rights. Uh, there are some other people who would disagree with this trend, and I, I wonder generally what uh, Professor Keith and per perhaps what Professor Ghosh might have to say about uh, these recent developments and whether they portend any potential future uh, sort of appellate court, even Supreme Court, uh, weakening of the fabric of patent law. Okay. Let's take another two, and then we'll open it to the panel. My question may actually piggyback off that a little bit, particularly with Professor Keefe's uh, notions and that I like and I think are good in a perfect world as far as patents as a market. You seem to end up now with a significant free rider issue with patent trolls where somebody, for example, that has a large, fairly incomprehensible family of patents directed to a phone lottery system systemically enforces them against uh, pretty much anybody that has a phone system that says press one for this, press two for something else. Um, how is, is there a good constitutional way without overregulating? And I mean, obviously, patent trolls is a big enough issue. I don't expect a, a, a coherent answer here necessarily. But um, how can a dynamic market that promotes the kind of competition we want and the kind of innovation we want deal with and get rid of this free rider? Okay, let's take one more before we have the panelists respond. Okay. My question uh, responds to, uh, well, actually, the question for Professor Keefe primarily about the research exemption or lack of research exemption under patent law. Um, of course, under Section 271E1, there is an exemption for the development of information to be submitted under drug regulatory laws, and the uh, Supreme Court in the Merck case read that quite broadly. Um, it, it appeared to me that because so much of our, of our, so much of drugs developed are subject to regulation, that that almost comprises a research exemption, at least for drugs. Um, and I, so I wanted to ask the professor and the whole panel um, whether you agree and whether you think uh, there should be a, such a research exemption. Okay, why don't we start with uh, the, the first question was... Will there uh, be more questions? Yes, yes. We just wanted to get a couple into the mix so they could... Uh, handle them together. But the first question, I think, was about some of the negative comments on patent rights, the second one about the free rider problem, the third one about the lack of research exemption. So why don't I throw it to you all to well, handle this? Uh, I'll take a first stab, even though it wasn't directed at me. It's all free ride off the questions that were uh, posed to Professor uh, Keith Ghosh. Um, I just want to note, uh, with respect to some of the problems uh, highlighted in the first question, that um, there's a tendency to think that these are unique and, and, and uh, uniquely modern problems, patent trolls and things of that sort, um, although I'm sure uh, the Professor Keith and Ghosh will, will talk effectively about that. Um, and actually what one finds, though, when one looks at the historical record, that these problems have always existed. Um, I found in legislative records from the 19th century and court opinions, people complaining about the exact type of behavior that we now talk about trolls. Um, oh, there's people who are holding up the deployment of barbed wire because some people patented barbed wire and they're having problems, these farmers out in the West, because these people who don't make barbed wire are nonetheless forcing them to pay all these licensing fees. And how are, you know, this is a problem. This is... This is preventing the, the, the effective uh, creation of the, of, of the ranches and stuff in the West. Um, and the patent system has survived uh, for 200 years and done a, an amazing job, um, I think, promoting innovation and uh, new commercial products, uh, despite these problems. Um, so um, I, um, 
my my only suggestion from the historical perspective is to always recognize that all things all things old are new again, and that a lot of these problems that we ha are talking about today have always existed. And in fact, we should probably look back a little bit more and realize that these problems were dealt with before, and, and, and perhaps we should deal with them in the same in the same ways, if not if not new and better ways that we can think of now. Oh, I'll, I'll take them in reverse order. About the the Merck case, I mean, I think it was a pretty broad exception. I think Justice Scalia. And the court in that in that particular decision uh, was were looking at the competitive structure of that particular market and and, and thought there was a, a need for that broad exception. And we, I'd be glad to debate that uh, if somebody has any further questions. But I think the the simple answer to that question is I, I think it was pretty broad, and I also would tend to think it was fairly appropriate, even though it does create some questions about how far it reaches. Um, the criticisms of uh, of bad patents. Um, well, I mean, we don't want the patent system to be a registration system. I think I think that's sort of what's at the back of all of this. So that means we have to have some sort of filter that says, you know, this deserves a patent and that doesn't deserve a patent. And uh, I don't know, the concept of probabilistic patents is more of a conceptual problem, a conceptual sort of uh, notion of patent law. But I think there is sort of a fundamental question of how you're determining what a good patent or a bad patent is. And this gets me to this question of patent trolling and and constitutional ways to deal with them. I, I don't know if there is a constitutional way to deal with them. I do view it as largely a legislative approach, which raises uh, the question that's, I think, come up in a number of discussions. It came up in Steve's comments about rent-seeking, right? I mean, the problem with rent-seeking, here I'll put in a little bit of my kind of economist hat, is competitive markets also are about rent-seeking. I mean, the real question is, you know, what do we consider the appropriate way uh, to uh, appropriate these types of rents. And I, I think that sort of we need to kind of rethink the way in which the current patent system and maybe the IP system creates incentives for sort of bad or inappropriate types of rent seeking. So I'll try to go uh, fast to uh, leave some more time because we've got a great line of questioners coming and I don't want to cut them off. A um, uh, couple of ways to think about these issues. Uh, you know, it would be great if we had a registration system for patents. I, I think that would be wonderful. When you think about what you want property rights to do, you want them to do a couple of things. Number one, you want property rights to not issue on stuff folks otherwise are doing. That's so that you can avoid the so-called hold-up effect, right? You don't want to let somebody invest in an area and then give a patent on it because then their investment gets held up. All right, that's fine. That's what a well-functioning novelty, non-obviousness, prior art rules do. They say, look, if folks are out there doing this, no patent. Those are not rules designed to reward inventors for doing new things. They're not designed to protect inventors. They're designed to protect the rest of us from the patent. If we have verifiable investments on the facts, we can prove it, no patent. I got no problem with that. I think that's great. Then you want disclosure rules the 112 rules in patent law to say, hey, look, and here's the forbidden turf on a going forward basis, so don't tread on this turf without recognizing you're stepping on somebody's property right. And I think that registering and publishing patents would put the world on notice. Now, the argument is, 
I take it that a so-called mere registration system is going to lead to kind of paper patents, patents not worth the paper they're printed on, uh, and we're not going to know unless the patent office tells us up front whether this paper is really worth something. I think that's just balderdash, right? The largest capital market in the history of the world exists around a mere registration system. The SEC could register securities filings and tell us whether they're good or bad to invest in. And yet we do perfectly well figuring that out for ourselves. The SEC does not do uh, whatever you're doing there is great. Keep that up. Um, the SEC does not do so-called substance review. It does form review only. And I think that's really all the patent office is designed to do. The people who have the best information needed to adjudicate the questions about the prior art are the people out there in the market. And those people can bring that information to bear in a litigation proceeding. Now, what do you want to do? You want to provide them with an incentive to bring it to bear. And that maybe means we should have symmetry and fee shifting in patents. But that's a much easier way to deal with the problem and a much more direct way to deal with the problem of so-called trolls and at the same time deal with the problem of so-called bad patents and at the same time deal with the so-called problem of uncertainty. Now, you know, probabilistic is really just a conclusion, and I think what's really going on, as is troll, by the way, troll is like a synonym for the guy suing me, right? I'm always good, and the guy who's suing me is always a troll, or vice versa. Um, but, but it seems to me that, that if you really want to take seriously these issues, you should notice that the trend in Congress uh, with the House bill, in the Supreme Court, uh, and at the patent office with the new rules against patents in a variety of areas is a trend towards flexibility and discretion. Flexibility sounds comfortable and a sound. Who wants to be rigid after all? Right. It sounds sexy. It sounds cool. But the problem with flexibility is it has a giant Achilles heel. Flexibility means that the people with the best litigation and lobbying budgets win and the little guys lose. And that is a public choice nightmare. surgeon. Um, recently, the government in Connecticut took private property for private use. And in my curmudgeonly paranoid attitude towards things the government might do to me and my family, I imagine a scenario where a court could allow taking of intellectual property for public or private use and set the price that the owner of that intellectual property would get. Is there much legal thinking in America today that would support such a taking? Good morning. I'd like to note we're in the Chinese room talking about intellectual property. <laughs> and uh, going back to uh, when the colonies united to... Uh, leave the crown. I just want to know what the word exceptionalism means to this panel. I think I'm missing out on something. And uh, my limited knowledge of intellectual property law, uh, I've lobbied on internet domain names and trademarks, digital copyright issues, and now patent law, both here and overseas. And just wondering, we go back to the British system of privilege, which we thought was bunk in this country. Uh, and Washington had to give Jefferson the patent rights 
the patent function in the State Department because if he gave it to Hamilton, the Treasury, Jefferson would have run off and not been a part of the first government. That's in Chernow's book about Hamilton from that point of view. Uh, you go back to the Venetians a few centuries ago. They go back to the Chinese or that part of the world a thousand years ago. They were inventing all kinds of things, usually for war or farming. Sounds like the same kind of stuff is being invented today. Uh, seed, patents, uh, technology to fight terrorism, and so on. Uh, so you go back a thousand years ago um, and look forward to Mongolia, a current country in that part of the world. We talk about privilege in the UK. We talk about individuals and property rights and commerce here in this country. The Mongolians, with a relatively new constitution, guess where they put copper and patents? Anyone know? I think it might be the most evolved view. It's a human right. It's in the human rights clause of the Mongolian constitution. Now, obviously, the market in Mongolia is not great for intellectual property, at least not yet. Uh, maybe mining rights or exploration of uh, raw materials. But I'd like to know from the panel, what do you mean by exceptionalism? Is that a pejorative term, criticizing America? Are we a loser on our own? Is it exceptional because it's a really refined, strong system, a strong pull the world should harmonize up to? And ask this in the context of patent reform, legislation before the Congress and rules that come out of the patent office and to some extent the court decisions, that do we harmonize the U.S. system down to the lower standard of the rest of the world, or do we continue to encourage them through bilateral, multilateral treaties to harmonize up? Thank you. Let's start with the exceptionalism question. Maybe, Steve, you could address that uh, question first from your perspective and what you've seen both on the Senate Judiciary Committee and in your current role in the Copyright Office. Sure. Uh, well, when you go back to compare early uh, colonial law to the law of the UK, I think copyright, like most fields of law, emulated the law of the UK very closely. The uh, Great Britain had what's generally recognized as the first copyright statute anywhere in the world in the Statute of Anne in 1710. And uh, even prior to the ratification of the Constitution, several of the states had, all, had their own copyright statutes, which were not far off from what we saw in the Statute of Anne, nor was the first federal act in 1790. However, I think when one compares the U.S. approach to uh, a number of other approaches that exist in the world and the, that I tried to outline in my opening remarks, I think one can see a distinction between the American approach, which remained, as I said, largely isolationist through the 19th century and based in formalities well into the 20th century, but uh, shifted dramatically in the late 20th century. Now, one could cynically... Just, Despite that fact, and, and I think in that context, exceptionalism simply means America was different among the other leading countries, and I won't say necessarily better or worse. I didn't mean to suggest, and I, I hope I didn't suggest, that American copyright law wasn't uh, sufficiently protective, because I think it was a strong copyright law, at least for domestic authors, and surely the, the growth of the motion picture industry, the recording industry and more recently software industry in the United States to where we have the world world's leading uh, industry in all those sectors 
bespeaks at least in part a strong set of intellectual property protection and copyright protection. Let me uh, throw it to each of the three professors. The question was about exceptionalism or harmonization down. I guess whether it's up or down depends on your perspective, but uh, let each of the three of you comment on that. Yeah. Or just go. Yeah. Let's go back this way. <laughs> Great. Okay, so I'll just go really fast and say, I, you know, Steve made a point uh, earlier that I just don't want us to gloss over because it's really important. He, he noted that the so-called French moral rights approach could be seen by some as actually giving more protection than we give in America. And, and he, he hinted at why that makes sense, but I just want us to notice and really focus on why it makes sense for us to choose, even though we're, quote, pro-property in the U.S., to give less. We get more by giving less. The neat thing about the rights that we do give in the U.S. is that they're transferable away. And the horrible or clumsy, terribly clumsy thing about so-called moral rights is you cannot transfer them away. And so, Peter, in answer to your question, harmonizing up or harmonizing down exceptionalism, I think the exceptionalism is that we take them seriously, but we don't take them so seriously that people cannot part with them. And what's dangerous about phrases like human rights or phrases like moral rights is that they're the kinds of things that we, ju we usually think folks shouldn't part with and therefore we don't let them part with. And that makes it really hard for the market to deal with. Are we not doing the takings question? Are we doing that? Okay. I view exceptionalism as a positive. I, mean, I meant it, it, it what makes uh, the United States approach to IP law unique. But, and also, to the extent that it becomes a model that other countries follow, what are, the, what are the highlights? And I do think it's the competitive aspect. So just to go back to a number of points, I think we have this word protection. I just want to put on the table. We need to think about protective of what? And I will just forward it. It's not necessarily protective of the in individual inventor or the individual creator, because often these rights might end up in hands that are outside that individual inventor, individual creator, for good or for bad. I view it as protective of the marketplace. I know that seems contradictory in some ways because that's not how intellectual property has traditionally been portrayed. But that's what we need to focus on, how it protects and, and, and promotes a marketplace for ideas, marketplace for technology, a marketplace for innovation. And that might involve, in some ways, offering less protection for inventors and authors in some situations. Um, just, just to back clean up, um, the, I, I've used exceptionalism as largely as a descriptive term. It means different. And then whether that's good or bad is based upon the types of identification of what types of rights, value judgments, and uh, particularly where are you putting your normative valuations, market, moral rights, and things of that sort. Then you can make the evaluation of whether the exceptionalism is, is, is good or bad. Um, but the exceptionalism as such simply just identifies the fact that the United States has taken different approaches in a lot of its IP regimes, um, copyright, patent, and trademark, just as a general, just general matter. And um, harmonization doesn't necessarily mean increasing or decreasing, just means harmonization. And again, depends upon what your focus ultimately should be, whether it's going to be on the market or whether it's going to be on moral rights. If you're a big advocate for moral rights, and you're, then, the, then the recent harmonization in the copyright, for example, seems to be a good thing. Um, because there seems to be an imp importation of moral rights conceptions into the U.S. copyright law now based upon the Berne Convention. We also had a question about takings and appropriate compensation schemes. 
start uh, Sure, I guess I'll incorporate by reference a debate that Adam and I had at the Federalist Society luncheon a couple of months ago, which I think is online, which was a, was a resolved all those questions. But, uh, <laughs> but give us uh, a summary. In, in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> it was a tie. Uh, <laughs> Uh, certainly, yeah, I'm concerned about the Kilo case. One of the things I want to emphasize about the Kilo case is um, one of the things it did do is promote a discussion at the state level about how to restructure eminent domain and the legislative and administrative protections, which I think was very a productive outcome of that particular case. And I don't think would have happened if the case had come out the way people probably in this room would have wanted it to come out. And with the parallel then in, in patent law, uh, and I'm going to tie it into to Scott's point about patent reform. I'm not sure we've had that same sort of administrative debate in patent law in a substance. And we're not really having it now either. I mean, I think I would agree with Scott in the sense that a lot of these patent reform efforts, um, as I tell my students, if you want to get a headache, read the recent patent reform bill because it will give you a headache. Uh, and I think part of the problem now is, We've had too many institutional actors pounce on patent reform at once, the courts, the legislature, and, and the patent office, for that matter. And, I, and frankly, I thought the courts were probably doing a good gradualist enough job, as is, uh, to, to let's see and wait what happened, especially with cases like eBay and KSR is another matter, but, you know, certainly with eBay and MedImmune and so forth. Um, just as a as a as a, as a general um, introductory remark, um, federal law in Section 1498 already requires that if the government um, uses a patent without authorization, that it has to pay. Um, and, and Section 14 has long been recognized as an implementation of, of 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 the eminent domain power of the state and the requirement of payment of some sort of compensation. Um, but I believe that the, the conceptual classification of something as either a privilege or simply as a regulatory entitlement is important here because it does have implications of whether it's covered by the takings clause. The Federal Circuit um, just a couple of years ago announced that patents are not covered by the takings clause. Um, in my historical research, I found substantial case law, both the U.S. Supreme Court and lower federal courts, as I indicated in my talk, where they did hold that patents were covered by the takings clause on the grounds that these things were private property rights. Um, and that this is one of the implications that flows from what might seem to be uh, an unimportant conceptual distinction. Well, isn't this really about getting inventions to the market? So isn't this really about market regulation? Well, if you classify it as a market regulation, that has tremendous implications for takings clause jurisprudence, for example, among other things, like due process protections as well. Um, so um, does the Kilo decision perhaps pretend some dangerous things that, are, that might happen in, in, in IP? Uh, yes, but in a certain sense, Kilo didn't change anything. Kilo was just a ratification of what the federal government and state governments have been doing for decades already, um, and that there was a lot of talk, and the continuing talk even pre-Kilo, about taking patents and taking other types of IP entitlements for public uses. And I'll just go really fast and say uh, the question uh, about takings, the question about research use, uh, um, uh, I think the reality is, Property rights and patents today are gone, okay? They're just gone. Uh, so I think we can talk more about this if you want. But the reality is uh, you, you do not meaningfully have a right to exclude today in the patent system. Damages, enhanced damages, injunctions, um, even the ability to get them and the ability to enforce them, I think in almost every respect, has been very, very seriously eroded. And this has all happened in the last 18 months. 
Scott, Scott's feeling verklempt. Discuss amongst yourselves. Section 1498. Uh, however, due to a trio of decisions issued on the same day in 1999 by the Supreme Court, Alden versus Maine, the College Savings Board versus Florida Prepaid, and conversely, Florida Prepaid versus College Savings Board, we have a, uh, a precedent which immunizes states by virtue of their sovereign immunity transcendent of the 11th Amendment that uh, renders them entirely immune, should they so choose to be, from any damages award for infringement or taking of intellectual property, uh, with the only possible remedy being an injunction. Uh, and I would suggest to you that that is a grossly unfair outcome, even if I'm committing federal society heresy by criticizing the decision of Justice Scalia and Chief Justice Rehnquist in the latter two cases. All right, why don't we uh, <clears throat> take the... The last two here. If anyone else has one, please jump up, but we'll take these two and uh, ask the panel. Uh, two questions. One quickly for, uh, for Scott Keefe. And it's uh, you talked about the correlation in the last 10 years between uh, great software development and uh, kind of more explicit recognition of software patents. And I wonder if you're inviting us to steal a base or maybe several by inviting us to infer that that's a causal uh, uh, connection uh, when so many other things have been going on as well. Uh, and then my question is for Mr. Tepp, and this kind of builds off what Scott talked about. I thought Scott was pretty persuasive uh, when he talked about uh, the transaction costs that are present uh, in enforcing patents uh, kind of prevent a lot of the enforcement that might worry us. So we don't really need kind of research exemptions in patent law, uh, Scott would seem to be arguing, because people just aren't going to kind of enforce those. They're going to be interested in commercializing their patents, you know, and so uh, going after people who are making money off of them. So that seems uh, uh, somewhat compelling, at least, and kind of putting aside worries about kind of rule of law undermining uh, from widespread uh, uh, disobeying of law, even if it's only civil uh, uh, or civil uh, li liability. Uh, but, Mr. Tepp, you talked about the U.S. being in favor of more uh, criminalization of copyright infringement. I wonder if you'd respond to kind of Scott's insights on the patent law, because it seems to me that, that part of the uh, or a potential problem in copyright uh, is whereas we might want uh, criminal liability for people who uh, are printing thousands of c DVDs of Hollywood movies, we might want to do that because we, we might kind of make an agreement. You know, China, you uh, kind of enforce our, our people's uh, IP rights. We'll enforce yours in our country. It's more efficient than them having to go overseas and sue. That, that might make sense. But should it be limited at least uh, to this kind of widespread commercial kind of infringement so that things like fair use things like de minimis use, so that users, when even though it's unlikely they would have criminal law uh, enforced against them, maybe their use is really chilled so that we get uh, uh, less use of copyright materials than we otherwise would get. We don't have this kind of efficient breach kind of system uh, in copyright that, that Scott seems to uh, say we have in patent. Thanks. Let's uh, have the other two speak, uh, questioners ask their questions. Thanks. Um, the panelists uh, talked a, a bit about uh, the issue of certainty, uh, but I'd, I'd like to ask them to focus on that issue a little bit more. And um, Professor Keith 
raised an interesting distinction between uh, copyright law and patent law in that uh, with copyright law, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the enforcement regime because uh, the fair use test is just, you know, very discretionary and difficult to apply. Um, uh, whereas in patent law, there's a lot of certainty about what your rights are. But uh, on the other hand, in copyright law, there's a tremendous amount of certainty as to what the actual underlying work generally is. Um, whereas in patent law, there's, there's certainty in, in what your rights are, but there's tremendous uncertainty in what is actually covered by the patent and what, you know, what, what is being um, claimed as the, the property right. And uh, so under the, under the topic of American exceptionalism, I'm wondering uh, if, if the panelists could address whether they believe that America is doing better than foreign countries or worse with regard to creating certainty, which is very important in a, in a property rights system, and um, what, if, if we're doing better or worse, what are the specific you know, things that we're doing um, to create more certainty um, or things we're failing to do to, that create less? Thanks. A prepaid case, and, and Thanks. Let's, uh, Scott, there was a question about uh, software development and whether you were making a causal point. Uh, you want to respond to that? Yeah, so, so uh, uh, David, you called that, am I stealing base by, uh, by trying to imply that through correlation we have causation? No, I'm trying to make a very, very express statement about where I think we should go, which is from first base to second base. We should do the research to determine whether we can get there. I'm announcing a hypothesis, and I think that the hypothesis is reasonable and I think that it is a alternative explanation than the explanation we've been hearing in the antitrust halls, which is that regulating Microsoft created Google. I, I don't think regulating Microsoft created Google. I think Google was the creation of a lot of really smart folk uh, structuring some really great deals. And getting deals done, I think, is what creates competition. And the hypothesis is that the presence of a 10-year window of meaningful patent protection in the so-called software and business method space from 96 to 2006, I think, is uh, so closely correlated with that competition effect that I'm hypothesizing that's where we should look for the behavior. And Steve, there was a question uh, to you talking about the U.S. being in favor of um, more criminalization of copyright infringement and uh, went on from there. Can you respond to that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Actually, there were, I got about three questions, I think. So well, if, yeah. <laughs> and if, a few subparts. Uh, if, if you're all right with it, I think I'll try and tackle them all, but in reverse yeah. order. On the issue of state remedies for infringement uh, in Florida prepaid, as far as the copyright law is concerned, no, there are none because there's federal preemption explicit in the Federal Copyright Act. But let me take yeah, let, let me take that as an invitation to take a swipe at Shuba, uh, <laughs> because in your in your uh, uh, initial remarks, you you cited the 
constitutional copyright and patent clause is evidence of an intent to create a national market and avoid the multitude of state laws. But in fact, notwithstanding the present law, before 1978, the 76 Act, which came into effect in 78, there were a multitude of state laws for all unpublished works from 1790 to 1978. And indeed, Congress need not enact either a copyright or a patent law if it so chose. So I'm not sure that substantiates the point you were going after there. With regard to certainty and fair use, no, fair use does not provide certainty. And there's a tradeoff there. The immense power and impressive wisdom, I think, of fair use is that it was articulated as an exception to copyright initially as a judicial doctrine at the turn of the 19th century. And the fact that it still remains as useful today in the age of instantaneous Internet transmissions of digital data as it did when the cutting edge technology of the day was piano rolls tells me that this is a doctrine of law we ought not easily jettison. There are numerous countries around the world that do not have fair use. In fact, that's perhaps an example of American exceptionalism. There are a few examples of fair use. Many countries have something called fair dealing, which more specifically enumerates the types of exceptions and type of activities that are eligible for those exceptions. The drawback there is that while they provide greater certainty and specifically outlining what may or may not be done, they must be constantly updated for changes in technology that occur inevitably and provide a constant challenge to the application of copyright law. That is a good segue into the final question about the criminalization of copyright and why Scott was completely wrong in his opening remarks. Let me note in passing that the two examples Scott gave were perhaps not the best. The poor lady in Minnesota to which he referred is Jamie Thomas, who was found by a jury of her peers to have willfully infringed 24 copyrights. Somewhat less sympathetic, I think, than perhaps you might have initially thought. Similarly, in the case of the dreaded FBI warning and the approximately 10 seconds of Scott's life that he doesn't get back watching the FBI warning, I can tell you that that deals less and almost in fact not at all with pure copyright law, but rather with a provision of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act prohibiting the circumvention of access controls. And that law, in addition to containing several exceptions in the statute, also provides for a triennial rulemaking process to be conducted by the Copyright Office. And in fact, a request was made of the Copyright Office in the 2003 process to create an exemption specifically for the purpose of fast-forwarding through the FBI warning. And our conclusion was that ripping all protection against piracy from an entire motion picture was probably overkill in response to that 10-second inconvenience. Now, just getting back, sorry, I'm taking a long time, but 
the central question about criminalization and, and whether copyright over-criminalizes. I think, first and foremost, you need to remember that criminal uh, remedies do not attach to copyright infringement unless they are willful. So we are, by definition, not talking about an instance where a good faith effort was made to consider whether an, a particular use was fair and, oops, turns out you were wrong. Uh, no, no criminal penalties are available in a situation like that. Uh, similarly, common sense prosecutorial discretion, as well as the tremendously limited resources of the Justice Department and in this area, and I don't mean that as a criticism of the Department of Justice, just the reality that they have bigger fish to fry and the number of copyright prosecutions they take per year suggests that they're not going to take a case of that nature. Uh, copyright does provide for substantial penalties, even on the civil side. I think those are justified. There are uh, substantial limitations for uh, the awards where the uh, infringer is proven to have been an in innocent infringer. There are limits on the availability of all remedies uh, in terms of registration. A copyright owner who fails to register in a timely manner may lose their ability to come into court with a presumption that they are in fact the right holder, that the work is in fact protected by copyright, and they may lose their opportunity to request statutory damages or attorney's fees. So I would suggest the copyright law has created a better balance than perhaps Scott would, would, uh, would believe. Let me have the three professors make uh, comments on ex American exceptionalism in terms of creating certainty and then any other final comments they want to make. These will be the last comments. Just, just to respond on the, the, the federalism point, I mean, I, 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 I don't know that much time. I'll take it from my other comments. But uh, I, I don't think it's a contradiction to say that, you know, there can be state regulation in certain areas. I certainly believe preemption should be a little bit stronger than it is under current, uh, current IP law, but that's another matter. But, I mean, you know, sure, you can have contracts that protect things. If Congress doesn't protect sound recordings as it did not before 1972, then state can have various laws. I think that's part of the competitive process. A lot of states also didn't protect those things. So I don't view that as a, a contradiction with, with, with what I said. It's just the way in which the markets are structured for those types of works. Um, as far as uh, I'm certainly I've been trying to toy over this, I, I think somebody, somebody asked to make the, the question asked to kind of make a comparative point. And I think the underlying answer has to be that, that the U.S. system probably has, uh, probably is more uncertain than other IP systems right, for the various reasons that have been, that have been raised. But I want to make the point that that's probably a good thing. Uh, I think that uncertainty is probably showing that we're still having a very active debate about how we want to structure markets and how we want to structure property rights to promote innovation. And I view that as a healthy sign overall, not in all instances, but overall. Adam? Yes, on, on the uh, on the exceptionalism certainty point, I, I agree with Shuba that the that I think there is also greater uncertainty in the U.S. patent system. But that's precisely agreeing with Shuba that it's the advantages of the U.S. patent system. The U.S. patent system has has uh, uh, broken new ground in permitting patents on biotech and pharmaceutical products and in computer in the computer industry in ways that other countries have not and pushed those boundaries outward in terms of what type of new innovative products can be patented and in doing so 
you obviously will enter into areas where there's greater uncertainty as to what's happening when you're dealing with brand new innovation, which can't even be captured necessarily in our pre-existing language. As, uh, as people are all want, want to often say, the one thing we know with certainty about innovation is that it's totally unpredictable and uncertain about where it's going to go and what's going to, what it's going to be. The Internet itself is a huge example of that. Um, and with that, I think that property serves as a wonderful conceptual framing device for understanding what's going on in the patent system. Because we often think of the property system as being a, this wonderful model of, of certainty in the, real, in the real property context, but it's not. Um, for someone who teaches property, you know that there are substantial doctrines where there's uncertainty in, in patent law, from nuisance um, to the equitable doctrines involving the scope of easements to restrictive covenants, um, you know, to adverse possession. Uh, these are doctrines that involve lots of fact-sensitive, multi-factor uh, considerations, um, and you have the exact same type of existence of, of the exact similar type of doctrines in, in patent law as well. So um, we shouldn't create a, a false foil of certainty by which to evaluate the patent system. Scott, some final comments? Uh, so uh, this has just been really fun, and I really appreciate Steve's comments. I, I, I think uh, 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 this is a great uh, example, I hope, of, of kind of tough questions and tough analysis. I don't know that we disagree with each other as much as we might. I don't know that we agree with each other as much as we might, but I love uh, the uh, way you describe the difference. Uh, yeah, there is sunlight between us on, on that one. Um, but, but let's notice what it is. It's a discussion about likelihoods of error rates, magnitudes of, of the error under enforcement, over enforcement, the costs of over enforcement, under enforcement. And those are tough questions. Uh, and and uh, I, I would say that as long as collectively we're engaged in that kind of analysis, on average, we're going in the right direction. And I do think that is an American exceptionalism story. It's a story of analysis and, uh, um, and mechanisms, uh, analyzing the facts and developing legal mechanisms that will help people in the marketplace interact with each other to get deals done. Uh, so I think that's actually a really good thing. Uh, and then I'll just end by saying, uh, as, as, a, as an advertisement, I guess, but also as an invitation, uh, we've got a new project um, uh, out uh, at the Hoover Institution at Stanford on commercializing innovation. And we're, we're on the web now at innovation.hoover.org. And we're looking at the set of legal and business relationships uh, that can help get deals done in this area, intellectual property, antitrust, bankruptcy, uh, corporate governance, uh, property rights. And, uh, you know, please, uh, let's continue this conversation. We're really happy to host it. Uh, we're really happy to write about it. And thanks so much. Well, thanks to the audience members for being here. Thanks again to the Federalist Society leadership for organizing and running such an extraordinary conference. And let's thank these four great panelists for a superb discussion today.